Hey everyone, this is Anna Firminov, and this is Modern Startup Marketing, a show that's shining a light on those startups that are taking their marketing efforts to the next level. And now to this episode. Paige Lanassa, welcome, welcome, welcome. Paige um, is the head of marketing at Forager, and Forager was founded in 2018. It's about 75 people, and it's based out of Chicago, Illinois. On the funding side, they have raised Series A, so a total of $10 million. And to give a little bit of a blurb around what Forger does, it's a cross-border logistics technology company that makes shipping truckload freight between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada super simple and cost-effective. So essentially, a tech company that happens to be really good at moving freight. Is that is that a good sort of um, blurb around what Forager is? Yeah, that is an excellent, excellent spiel. So if you ever want a job here, just given that spiel, that would be perfect. <laughs> really makes it succinct, right? So thank you. Thank you for coming on here. I am really looking forward to dive in and understanding what you're, you guys are up to. I actually recently spoke to George from ShipBob a few episodes ago. So, uh, and, and ShipBob also deals with logistics. It's a, it's a tech company. So this will be really interesting to kind of understand understand because they're a different size company to understand how, what you guys are working on versus you know what what they they've been working on so happy to have you on here yeah great to be here thanks for the invite why don't we start with I gave a quick spiel about forager maybe if you want to fill in any gaps and talk about forager why do you exist who are you you for what problems do you solve kind of get into that a little bit yeah definitely so kind of the first big question is the why. And it's kind of a simple answer. It's logistics is the backbone of, of all global commerce. Like there are very few things in your life that you'll touch that haven't sort of been in turn touched by logistics. But despite that, like despite their, the billions of dollars of goods that move between the US, Mexico and Canada, it's still this very complicated, very analog, process, you know, there are two com- there are two countries involved, seven plus parties, different languages, different jurisdictions, different customs. So it's this incredibly complicated, incredibly snarly logistical nightmare. And as a result, a lot of the innovation, you know, that we've seen in the domestic space with, you know, your convoys and your, you know, ship ops hasn't really made the jump to cross border. So this really, really essential service is is a nightmare. And that's kind of where Forager comes in. You know, we use that technology, we use a digital marketplace model to just connect the dots between shippers, that's people who have freight they want to move, and carriers, that's people who can move that freight, and make that connection very seamless, very transparent, and kind of give them that domestic service on an international level. Wow, that's a way better explanation of why you exist and also how you're different from others that are out there and how you're and the problem that you're solving. So sounds like a really meaty problem to tackle. <laughs> yeah, so, it's, it's ambitious. Definitely. So you joined about a year and a half ago and I'd love to understand like when the company pretty much got started, right? So 
you were in the thick of it. And I'd love to hear, like, what were you working on in those early days as the sole marketing manager? What did you do early stage, given that you had limited resources? Um, what did you do to stand out back then? Yeah, so I I was actually, now that I'm thinking about it, one of the earlier hires when I joined, we still called Forager Friday Mezcal Friday. So that's about where we were as a startup. And I was the first and for a while only marketing hire. So I was the marketing manager of myself. So a lot of the work that needed to get done, I had to do. So the early days were spent kind of ingloriously doing that nitty gritty foundational work. Like we didn't really have a social media like presence at all. We, we didn't really have a solid website. We didn't really have a solid system for inbound. Like there was basically nothing. So it was doing that nuts and bolts, get these processes in place, test, iterate, go, 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 do it yourself. I learned like Photoshop and just generally like tried to fill in all the gaps myself. So to stand out, luckily I have always had a background in like small businesses. So I'm kind of used to having to do it all myself with like no money at all. So don't feel too bad for me. I knew what I was signing up for when I got hired and I sort of approached it the same way that I'd approached it previously, which is, all right, what's the free stuff? What can I, what can I get that's like free? What can I get that's like an early win, a, a low hanging fruit? Like what are the basics that I can get out of the way? And then in terms of like standing out, Really, our focus was, you know, executive positioning, which I think is most startups, you know, you've got your charismatic founder, you get them a lot of interviews, you know, we're very fortunate in that Matt Silver, our founder, has a lot of experience in logistics and, you know, is, is kind of a, a figure unto himself. But beyond that, we did this philosophy of make good stuff. And I think kind of good and valuable are concepts that get conflated a lot. Like, I'm sure we've all read textbooks that are full of really valuable information, like critical data that is just awful to read. Like it is not good to read content. It is just valuable content. So we wanted to avoid producing stuff that's just, you know, wrote, here is what logistics is. We wanted to make it good and compelling and interesting. And we did that by bringing a lot of humor and like doing freight memes in our newsletter and just generally like bringing some personality to, to elevate beyond that standard thought leadership and make it into something that's like fun and worth engaging with beyond just, oh, I need to know what transloading is because you can go to Wikipedia and do that. Yeah. So you essentially brought that personality. The company sort of represented a person and they were humorous and you made logistics more fun. And that's really cool. I love to hear that when people shake things up in the industries that are they're a, a bit more nervous to to go in, in in an unfamiliar direction and bring like a little bit of edginess or a little bit of humor but you weren't afraid of that. So that that's really cool. And that resonated well with your target audience. Yeah. You know, like freight, freight people, you know, there's a lot of jokes about freight people and how once you're in logistics, you're in it for life because you just can't leave. They won't let you leave. And I found that to be true. Like it's a very diverse bunch of people who really love what they do and are really entrenched in the industry and bring kind of their whole selves to work. So I think a big reason we've seen, you know, a lot more engagement online, we get a lot of nice com compliments and comments about our blog is because they're like, yeah, I, I'm just a person and I really like 
being able to interact with content on that human personal level. Like, I mean, who doesn't like a good meme? Really? Like, yeah, it was just connecting with them in that way. Absolutely. <laughs> who doesn't love a good meme? I can't think of anybody that doesn't love a good meme. When you mentioned low hanging fruit and you did talk about social, the website starting some inbound traction. Can you talk more specifically about like what was what was one or a couple of the low hanging fruit where you had really good impact from what you were working on? I want to say probably email marketing. You know, there's a lot of great tools out there. Like I think MailChimp at the time was free up to a certain number of contacts, like that sort of thing. It's really easy to just create drag and drop templates and just send out some lists, like test the waters a little bit. Like we got some, some great responses and engagement very early on with just those super straightforward MailChimp standard templates. That was a big win for us. And the other one was just starting a blog. You know, we had a website already. So putting out content, like not even every week necessarily, but sometimes only two or three per month. That was a great way to just give people a reason to visit our website, even if they're maybe not ready to buy, or even if they don't have any need for our services just yet. So that was, those were two great ways to drive both engagement and, you know, traffic. Awesome. So not only did you create that foundation, which the company definitely needed in those the early days, right? Created that personality. You also had some wins with email marketing, the blog, like the content st engine started going. And it wasn't just about branding yourself. It was also about getting some engagement, people coming to visit, coming to read stuff that you're writing that's interesting, that's good and valuable, right? And then further down the line, if they're interested in working with you, then they actually, then they purchase. So awesome. Thank you for, for walking through that um, early stage stuff. I always like asking that if I, if a person has been at a company for a while or from the, you know, early days, I love asking this question because I always hear things like, well, I was looking for the free stuff. <laughs> well, we didn't have a lot of money, but you don't need a lot of money. You honestly, I, I think that that's a reason why it's so intriguing at startups people can be so creative. They don't realize it with so little. You just have to put the barriers on there and then you realize, oh my gosh, I can actually get so much done without having to spend a lot of money. So yeah, definitely. I think people conflate that good marketing with expensive marketing, but really marketing is just, you know, creating a story or telling a compelling story, making a narrative out of this kind of big nebulous brand. And you can do that with a free stock photo and a little bit of, of, of photo manipulation. Like it doesn't take a lot to say something worth saying, or we wouldn't see so many viral videos. That's right. And consistency is key, I think too, right? So that people really truly get it. You repeat stuff over and over and that's also free. It's free to create a, you know, the story that you want to tell. And it's also free to consistently repeat it over and over. And that I think is the essence of really good marketing. So let's talk about the marketing team. Who's on it? What does that look like right now? You know, early days, it was just you. It sounds like there was no designer. You were like playing, dabbling in Photoshop and learning stuff yourself. But what does the team look like now? Yeah, now, fortunately, it is not just myself. I am no longer the manager of myself and myself alone. I am very fortunate to have a small but very mighty, very talented team. How it breaks down is obviously myself. And then we have a sort of content slash digital marketing manager who really 
owns our email marketing and the execution of our content calendar. And then we have a digital marketing specialist who really focuses on running those Google ads and managing all of our Spanish language content, since we also do some marketing specifically in Mexico. So that's really the core team. And then the kind of further system that has really worked well for us is this idea of floating resources. So we have a business analyst who primarily works with like the sales and operations team, but is also sort of earmarked for marketing. So we've got that floating business analyst, we have a floating admin, and we have a floating graphic designer. So we can flex and change our capacity without having those like required dedicated resources. That is super interesting, the floating resources. So essentially you've got these people, they're full-time at the company and depending on what other team is in need of that business analyst or the admin person or the designer, you kind of share, it's a, it's the shared resource, right? Yeah, very much. Like it's, you know, it, it kind of goes beyond just, oh, well, this is the person who sometimes does marketing. Like the organization as a whole really understands the importance and like kind of gets what it is we're trying to do here. So there is like a lot of focus and emphasis on, hey, like marketing is not your primary job, but like you definitely need to pitch in. Like we see all those ridiculous logo edits are doing really well. So you got to help them out with that. Yeah, that's great. I'm familiar with floating resources. We actually had something like that going on, in particular with the business analyst coming on to help out with certain things in marketing. And I think that I think it does make sense. I think it, it makes if and it, it seems it seemed to work for us. It seems to be working for you guys. And I like that that the idea of like floating resources kind of going team to team wherever they're they're needed, they they come and help out. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. Let's get into marketing and what you're working on and what's been working really well for you most recently. We talked about early stage. We talked about, you know, there was low-hanging fruit there. What's happening right now? What are what are the channels that are working really well for you? And maybe you can dive deeper on one and talk about why you think that is. Yeah, so we're unique in that we are a cross-border business, so we service a cross-border audience, and we are also a marketplace, which means that our audience is kind of segmented into supply, which is you know your carriers, and demand, which is your shippers. And then within that, there are further segments between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, and within those segments, there is enterprise versus mid-market. So really it's this incredibly vast potential audience. So the things that sometimes work don't necessarily cross apply. So definitely like a lot of the successes we've seen have sometimes fallen flat in other markets. But if I want to get like more specific on kind of an unequivocal success, that would be mostly inbound, primarily for a Mexican audience. We've seen a lot of great successes with Google ads, particularly I don't know why we get a lot more traction in Mexico versus the United States. Like I I could sit and speculate, but really we've seen just a lot more seeking out, a lot more willingness to give contact information, a lot more willingness to use personal emails even, and just a lot more engagement. So really we've, we've gotten a lot of success from the Spanish language Google ads. Can you talk a little bit more about like, what do you, what do you share in those ads? Like, what does a creative look like? What are you actually trying to get them to do? What's the experience like in when you get someone's attention with an ad? Yeah. So I think, you know, we're, again, you know, kind of unique because it's a very 
a, a very binary decision whether or not someone can use our services. Either they ship cross-border or they don't. And that's not really a criteria that you can, you know, include on LinkedIn. Like I can't specifically target people based on whether, whether or not they ship cross-border. So outbound is kind of difficult. So your display ads, you don't really know. You're just sort of making an assumption about your audience. And that's kind of off-putting, especially for an email. It's like if I get an email about a dog grooming service, I don't have a dog despite the dog barking behind me. I don't have a dog. So it's just not as 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 relevant to me. So with our inbound, we try to really speak to the need. Like if you're sitting down and you're Googling cross-border shipping, you have a clear and present need. So our creatives need to be as clear and present as possible because we know with outbound, who knows who we're talking to, but with inbound, we know exactly what they're here for. And we try to very succinctly explain what that is. So our, our keywords are very straightforward, self-explanatory. Our copy is not very flowery. Like you've got stuff to ship. We can help you ship it in a way that is is clear and easy and innovative. So yeah, it, it, there's there's not a lot of like art to it. It's really just being straightforward because they're already looking for that straightforward service. Yeah. So essentially you're really just trying to get them to come onto your website and contact you. Is that like the journey that you're trying to do to, to get them to, it sounds like you, you don't, you're not using the ads to share some kind of content. You're really just using those ads to get them onto your website and then maybe schedule a call with your sales team or, or, or fill out a form or something like that. Yeah, very much. We're just trying to drive that kind of traffic and start that conversation. Cause again, you know, usually they, they know what they're looking for. And cross-border, you know, is a very, very underserved niche. Like as a result of being so complicated, there are so few companies that focus on it exclusively or, or even at all. So the fact that there is any option for them and then we are speaking their language, we are saying, yes, here are the services we offer. They're what you're looking for. You know, because you are doing the shipping every day of your life. Like, we just kind of are able to connect with them on that. Like, yep, we got what you need. Here's the phone number. Give us a call. We'll make it happen for you. So are these people experiencing problem? Like that they're, this is just across your target audience. They re, they find that the shipping across borders is, is really difficult and they are trying to figure out ways to solve the problem and you're fine. This is kind of new to me. So I'd love to hear from you. Like what, what is it that's happening today with folks that are really that are trying to ship cross border are they they're they're just coming to roadblocks where they can't figure out how to make it more simple and cost effective yeah so first of all i can't believe that you don't have a deep well of knowledge about <laughs> north american freight no it's uh i'll, I'll give a, a really good example so you know if you want to ship a truckload from here to say el marques and you want to get just a quote. You want to know how much it's going to cost you. You'll have to pick up your phone and you will need to call individual carriers or you'll have to call your broker and say, hey, I really want to move this. How much will this cost me? And they go, okay, well, give me a sec. And then they'll have to go and call their carriers. And you'll have to repeat this over and over and over. And everyone is calling everyone else, trying to gauge. There is no standard sort of market cost. It's not as you know transparent as domestic. So sometimes getting a quote can take you from 30 minutes to like six hours. Like it can take a serious amount of time. So for your average cross-border shipper, they're really just like, man, I just want this to be easy. I just want to be able to get a quote. You know, I want, you can 
open Amazon's website and get a quote on a, on a lane right now. But the second it crosses a border, you just can't. So usually they're coming to us expecting this difficult system, or if they're at the point where they're Googling it, they're kind of fed up. Mm -hmm. Like, man, I just really need a solution right now. So yeah, we're sort of solving that problem. And we just provide quotes automatically. Like you can go on our website right now and get a quote, or you can you know, join our network and automatically know exactly how much you'd be making on each lane. So yeah, it's it's just providing that level of like automation and transparency for them where they never had it. That's fairly self-explanatory. I'm glad that you explained that to me. And now and it makes sense why those ads would be working. They just wanted to simply explain, like talk talk about the need, the the, the problem that they're having and get them over to your website, get that quote. That's all they're looking for. So pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. What about challenges? What What are you, what's keeping you up at night? What are you trying to figure out? Would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, you know, as I kind of mentioned, it's this highly specific mar- market within this absolute sea of people, you know, across countries and even languages. So for us, this, the challenge is always, how do we find the needle in this haystack? Like, how do we find the person who we ask, do you ship cross-border? And they will say yes. And there isn't really an, you know, an easy answer for it. It's, it's a lot of trial and error. It's a lot of testing. It's a lot of watching some Google ads succeed while others fail. It's, you know, being really surprised when traditional media works for one market and then absolutely bombs in another. So yeah, that, that, that challenge of finding, finding those people that you know exist, you have the trade numbers to know that they exist, but, but finding them is, is the thing that keeps me up at night. It's, am I talking to them? Am I where they are? I don't know. So why do you think it's difficult? Because the way that I would approach that challenge is you go out there and you talk to like 10 or 15 of these people and you ask them, where do you hang out? What things are you reading online? What virtual events are you attending? Or what do they like to do? Where do they get their information? What are they spending their time doing and just find out more about them? Do you, have you done that before? Have you found anything interesting that could help you try to solve this sort of challenge? Yeah. So, you know, obviously we've done a lot of persona work. I think that's pretty foundational to most marketing departments. And for us, you know, specifically, we've, you know, talked to these these people. And a lot of the times these logistics professionals are very entrenched in the industry. Like they read industry publications and we're like, okay, that's great. But so does every other logistics person. You know, there there isn't really dedicated, we are cross-border and we only cover cross-border media. Like really the only that I can think of dedicated, we're talking about specifically cross-border logistics. Media outlet is FreightWaves. They do a column series called Borderlands where they cover those issues. But other than that, it's just sort of a small category within this big C. And because this big C has such a large audience, you know, advertising within it is, is really expensive, sometimes prohibitively so. So it's it feels a little bit strange to take out, you know, big display ads knowing the majority of people who see them, even though they're within your industry, are going to go, oh, well, this isn't me. This doesn't apply. There is like some some targeting that we can do, but yeah, it's 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 difficult for sure. It's almost like you need to start something for these people to 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 bring them to you, like some sort of an ongoing virtual event or podcast or 
something where you could get a whole lot of them that haven't necessarily started working with you yet. But I don't know if that doesn't exist yet, then that could be a, an interesting way to create a group of them <laughs> that are interested in yeah. and with their content. I think that you're, you're start, you're probably starting to, to get that right. People that are interested in specific content that talks about the specific issues, you know, logistics, people that are doing cross-border stuff, you're going to get those people's eyeballs anyway, and you're sort of starting to create that group. So I could see that working for you too, where you just want them like a mass of them and then to, to tell them what you do and what you can help them with. Yeah, very much. And, you know, we've, we've sort of seen that effect more and more, you know, Silver, Matt Silver, our CEO has become more and more associated with this. Like he gets asked to write more and be involved more in the industry. And we have more people, you know, returning to our website, which is always exciting. We have a newsletter that's continued to grow. So yeah, we're, we're, we've sort of had to, by necessity, foster a space for this audience. And so far it's been, it's been going pretty well. And I think a big driver of that kind of comes back to making good stuff that's valuable and interesting. And if you build it, they will come. Yeah, that's right. So are you still able to hold on to that personality of like, you know, humor and um, just standing out front in the marketplace in that way over time since the early days where you started this sort of personality or how has that shifted? Yeah. So obviously, you know, pre-series A, when we were still, you know, a very small seed stage, you have more kind of freedom to play in that way. You know, it was just me. So basically the Forager brand voice was just my voice and what I thought was cool and what I liked. And that has necessarily sort of evolved because other people now are contributing to the look and feel of this brand. But, you know, even as we raise the A and as we, you know, approach our next funding rounds, we have that same commitment to, well, even as we get bigger and even as we, you know, institute a lot more of like those those big corporate processes, we still want to make good stuff. We still want to maintain the humor. Maybe we tell less jokes about tequila, you know, RIP the <laughs> tequila jokes, but, you know, we still want to approach everything like, well, well, do I like it? Would I want to read this? Is this something that when I have my 15 minute coffee break, I would scroll through? And I think you can, you can do that no matter what size your company is. You just need to maybe be a little more careful when it's a bigger audience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about 2020 and the, the impacts of COVID on logistics companies. Good talking to George from ShipBob, we, we talked a few episodes ago, we had talked about how COVID affected them and, you know, clearly logistics has been impacted. There's, um, I think stuff is just getting to places later, much later. Um, so tell me, how, how has COVID affected your uh, marketing strategy, if at all? And what do you plan to do differently this year? Man, it feels like I've, I've probably talked about COVID hundreds of times at this point <laughs> because it's, it's all anyone can think about. But, you know, fortunately, logistics is one of, if not the most like necessary service for commerce. You know, as I kind of mentioned earlier, it's so essential to literally everything we do that, you know, we've seen some of the volume decrease, but mostly just shift, you know, through other industries. So we've been pretty insulated in a lot of ways. Like almost everyone we work with is still working away, doing kind of that essential, that essential services. In terms of marketing, I... I think a lot of B2B industries are very reliant on, you know, events. Like events are very core. They're very core to logistics. They're very core to a lot of the other industries we work with, like, you know, 
produce and manufacturing and automotive, events are so central that suddenly just not having any of them was pretty was pretty jarring. You know, that that did impact our strategy. Event marketing is not cheap. So we at once were like, yay, look at all this money we have now. But also like, oh no, these were really big important moments for us. But you know, we weren't the only ones who were reckoning with it. And now going into 2021, you know, a lot of these events have been replaced with virtual events that continue to get better and better and better. Like 2020 was a little bit of a trial run, but going into 2021, I think we're going to see like even more like elaborate, more engaging, more interesting virtual events that'll sort of, if not completely replace, at the very least sort of supplement the holes that those events have left. So do you plan to have virtual events as part of your marketing strategy for 2021? Yeah, we're thinking mostly about, you know, sponsoring and kind of like glomming on to these other big virtual events. I think a lot of times anyone who's run a webinar will know you go into it thinking, well, it's just a virtual thing. Like it shouldn't be that complicated. And then it's this logistical, ironically, nightmare. So yeah, we're, we're probably probably going to hold off a little bit on the virtual events and kind of leave it to the experts who've had now a year to sort of readjust to the new normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to someone else on the on the podcast about like, let's just wait it out a little bit. We're not going to slap together virtual events if we haven't really done that before. And when the time is right, and we know we know what we're doing, we, we you know, we want to make sure that we have a professional grasp on this. So let's just not rush into it. And so you're, you know, you're kind of in the same boat talking about it in that way and more of a let's just sponsor other virtual events that are happening and leave it to to folks that have already learned a thing or two this past year. That makes sense. That makes sense. Definitely. And I have have a healthy dose of fear and respect for like event marketers. Virtual events are not easy to put on. I'm like, nope, I know my limits. I I know that I'm I'm not going to be able to compete with, with those guys. They really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a bit about you. You were always in marketing. You actually, you did run events, right? If I'm not mistaken, in your past, you were in charge of running events. Maybe you've been scarred by that experience. I don't know. <laughs> um, so from running events to using HubSpot for email marketing, you got a great experience there. Webinars, sounds like you've got experience there too. How would you say your background has prepared you for your role now heading up marketing at Forager? Like, what is it from your past experiences that you're bringing in that you're you're making use here now and, and makes you the perfect fit for, for heading up marketing at Forager? Yeah, marketing is sort of all I've ever done professionally. And it's kind of all I've ever wanted to do, which probably explains why it's all I've ever done. And I've been in it now for about like eight years doing a lot of work on the individual contributor level. So, you know, doing some of that event marketing, doing like the design work, doing copywriting and editing, just sort of doing all of those little building blocks of of marketing. So when you go into, you know, a small business or a startup environment, having that experience, sort of understanding the full breadth of marketing and what can be done with marketing and being able to, in some cases, do it yourself is is kind of is kind of invaluable. You know, even as I've grown the department at Forager specifically, being able to go into interviews and kind of have a conversation from a point of of 
even just mild understanding has resulted in a lot better like outcome and like being able to really articulate what I'm looking for and have these really good relationships and back and forth and understanding has really helped me kind of grow and build and shape the marketing department. Cause I feel like now I, I can ask my designer for something and like be able to say, Oh, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, a drop shadow or I know how to like move a layer in Photoshop. Just having that very foundational knowledge has been great for me and kind of, in that same vein, you know, I would say for startups and small businesses, your first marketing hire probably shouldn't be like, you know, your CMOs or your big executives, because, you know, if you haven't opened Google ads in 10 years, it's, it's hard to do it yourself. So the DIY mentality really, really helped because I think there's, you know, people who are good at building and people who are good at steering these big ships. And I'm definitely more of, of, of a builder. That makes a lot of sense to me. I talk to startups quite a bit about who do we hire? Who do we bring on as our first marketing hire? And on the one hand, they want to bring on someone that like knows what they're doing, you know, but on the other hand, you want to bring on someone that is learning the ropes or is fine getting into the nitty gritty details and has been doing that recently. You're not going to get that with, you know, uh, someone that's in a higher level position. So it's probably like the, the the type of person to bring in as your first marketing hire, I think, should be around like marketing manager level. I, I don't think that um, like a marketing associate might not be someone with enough experience to hit the ground running. And you ascend, you just have to figure everything out yourself for a little while. <laughs> so it's it's tough, right? You don't want to hire someone that's like too too experienced and it was like leading another team, you, you really do want somebody that's an individual contributor, but can jump right into, you know, figuring it all out and owning stuff. So yeah, yeah. And I was fortunate in that, you know, I'd built a department before. So, you know, I kind of understood that the first few months are going to be absolute chaos. And yeah, I, I think being able to roll up your sleeves and kind of do some of the work yourself just makes for a, a better marketing department. And that first hire, if it's me, you get to decide the brand voice and the style and the joke. So like that, that is a hire that is very, very difficult to make. And I hope Forager thinks that I was a good one. Well, probably since you've been there for a while. <laughs> so, <laughs> I did. I did survive the raise. That's right. That's right. So, and that's, I think that's also like, it's fun. It's fun to be the one that's making the decisions and, um, and it's fun to, to get in there early stage and, and be the one that decides, you know, personality and some of the branding and what do you want this to look and feel like? Um, I think it's fun. I think you also thought probably thought it was fun too. It's just a cool experience that if you're at a larger company, you don't necessarily get that that blank slate, blank canvas that you can you can kind of morph it into to what you want it to be. So awesome. Great. So um, let's talk about sharing something. I always like to ask folks to share something more personal. It's not, it shouldn't just be all business on, on this podcast. I want, I would love to like understand you more as a person, maybe something about how you've been handling 2020, something about your career, something that's that few people know about you. So please share, share whatever uh, you would like that's more personal to you. Yeah. So something that is not readily available on my LinkedIn, got it. 
I usually answer like those two truths and a lie or fun facts. I usually just say, oh, well, you know, I collect books. That's that's my big hobby. I have over 400 books in my collection. And then I just leave it there because that makes me sound very studied and interesting. But in the oh, interest do you of have more, 400, you have 400 yeah, books. Awesome. I have over 400 books. What, what are they? Uh, and I know this isn't like what you wanted to talk about, but what are the What are mostly the books like about what do you like to read? Actually, you have fallen right into my trap because that's exactly oh. what I was going to reveal <laughs> is like on face. It's like, wow, that's a lot of books. You must read a lot. And you must be very smart. But really, I like to collect specifically like old, obscure, very, very strange. And at this point, entirely useless books. So like I have a book about how to use typewriters. It's from like the 1920s and it's just typewriter lessons. And I have another book that's like this encyclopedia of all the great revelations in the last 10 years. And it was published in 1910. So it's about like locomotion engines and it's completely worthless in the modern era. But I am just totally delighted by these, these strange, these strange ephemera. I just love it. That's so funny. So have you read anything that's kind of like mind blowing or mind boggling? These predictions that they make, you know, there are some folks that that read about the predictions that were made a long time ago, and then some of them actually came true. So I don't know if you've gotten a hold of any books that are like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing, or just something that made you really like, learn in in a in a new way to think about a topic. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I recently got my hands on a book of predictions for the years of 1995 to 2010. It's like an interpretation of Nostradamus's predictions. And like one of the predictions was children will get the vote. And another one was we will colonize Venus. And it is a total riot, especially because it was published in like 1994. So this isn't that far off. And uh, yeah, I, I love that exactly that. It's it's very wrong, but it did it did kind of fill me with like a little bit of I don't know like nostalgia. Like I feel like a lot of the predictions surrounding technology in like the 90s or even like the as far back as the early 20th century are so optimistic and like hopeful and like, yeah, we're going to have this technology. No one will ever go hungry again. And it's kind of, it's kind of nice. It's kind of lovely that humans are are so optimistic about, you know, where, where we're going and where we'll be. Yeah. And I, I also think like this past year, 2020 has, I'm sure you've, you've talked to folks about this too. It it has really accelerated how quickly we have to figure out how to deal with certain challenges. It's really accelerated a lot that might that, you know, without COVID, maybe we, we would have taken a a longer time to get there. So in a way, this could mean that we we are kind of moving faster along towards progress than we, we would have been. So that's pretty intriguing. I, I don't know if you read about that in any of your books, but but I but I do think about that every once in a while. Like, where are we going to be after this this, uh, you know, the, the covid years? What does that mean for humankind? What are we where are we going to be in terms of, you know, tech and work? And like what what is going to be now more okay than it was in the past? You know, some some things are going to change pretty dramatically, I think, because of what just happened. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on on that. Yeah, we uh, published actually a blog kind of talking about technology and more specifically like nearshoring. So in in supply chain, China is very, very central to so much manufacturing. 
And this COVID situation, especially, you know, in the earlier days when, you know, a lot of the man, a lot of the manufacturing outfits were just not operating at full capacity, like that caused a domino effect across every manufacturing sector, like basically in the world. And I think a lot of manufacturers and a lot of people in logistics sort of looked around and got a little scared because once the you know initial slowdown stopped and they started ramping back up, it took a long time for all those goods to come back across the ocean. It wasn't just a switch getting flipped. I mean, to this day, we're still experiencing some shortages here and there. And I think you know, not only is there this this technology push to adopt and, and adapt and, and really innovate, there's also a reassessment of, of how we source our goods and where we source our goods. And we're already seeing a lot of companies sort of move into Mexico and try to bring it a little bit closer to home. And topics like environmentalism also move the needle. Like those huge barges burn a lot of fuel and are way less fuel efficient. It's yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be wild and crazy. Probably not as wild and crazy as my Nostradamus book thought, but it will be it will be pretty interesting to see where where the world winds up. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for all of your insights and all of your um, expertise and experiences that you shared. Even something quirky about you, I love hearing about the, the more personal side of, of the guests that I bring on. So thank you so much, Paige. If anybody wants to reach Paige, you can find her on LinkedIn, Paige Lanassa, and find out more about Forager by going to foragerscs.com. And just curious, what does the SCS stand for? It stands for Supply Chain Solution. Okay, beautiful. Thank you so much for that too. <laughs> well, thanks for, thanks for coming on here, Paige. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Startup Marketing. New episodes are dropping regularly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Anna Firminov, or visit my website, firminovmarketing.com. 